from 1 Thessalonians into 2 Thessalonians. Uh, Nathan, our church plant resident, finished the first letter up last week, and now we're moving into the next one. And uh, I seem to always be tabbed for these seemingly easily introductory messages. So this is what I've been working on this morning. I hope it's edifying uh, for us this morning. But what I uh, was thinking about as far as getting us into this text was back when I was young, six, seven, eight years old, uh, my family took a trip to Six Flags Chicago. And it was a big deal. We've never done anything big like that up until that point. And so I don't remember the name of this roller coaster, but maybe it was huge because I was just so young. All I remember was this massive white roller coaster. And I think the way my dad got me to ride it is by him saying, well, look, those girls just went on. You're not going to ride this? And that was enough to do it. So off I march on in my young man pride. And uh, as soon as I got up, we start going up this roller coaster, and we come over the top and start to look down. And I immediately regretted all of my life choices that led me to that moment. And from there, I found my dad's arm and latched on for dear life because I knew no matter what, I was falling out of this thing. I didn't understand G-forces, okay. You know, I didn't know that yet. And so I latched on for dear life because that thing was going to shoot me down. It was going to rock me back and forth because it's an old wooden roller coaster. And I'm going to go flying. But I think that is a little picture into what our Christian lives can be sometimes. Like we, we think we're riding this roller coaster. We think it's out of control. We think that we're going to get chucked out. We're going to get thrown out. We're going to uh, gravity force. That's all going to be reversed magically. We're going to go flying out of this car. And we stay tight to someone next to us because we think it's all going to derail. But I don't think that the Christian life should be like that. I think that we should be anchored well that something in the Christian life and the truth of a relationship with the Father and the Son and the Spirit should give us something that makes us unshakable, unafraid, not worrying about all the turns that are coming and if we'll be thrown out. And I think that we, can, we get that here. I hope I can show that from uh, verses 1 through 4 in 2 Thessalonians. And so if you'd pray with me before we jump into the text, uh, I would appreciate it. Lord, help us this morning as we dig into this, a, a new letter afresh from the Apostle Paul, that this wouldn't be something that we just breeze over, but we we slow down and we contemplate and we see and dig up what the Paul, uh, Apostle Paul is, is teaching us today through the Spirit, how we can come to know Jesus better through this text. Help us this morning. Help me and guide my words. And I pray this in your son's name. Amen. And so just to recap, 1 Thessalonians, we should remember that, that Paul planted this church not long before uh, he wrote the 1 Thessalonian letter. In chapter 3, he gives us the reason that he wrote that. We said Timothy came from them, gave them such a glowing review with some things that they had incorrect that he just had to write this letter and send it back with him. And so after he's, Timothy 
takes the letter to Thessalonica. He returns to Paul, has a couple more things to, that Paul needs to address, and then brings this letter, 2 Thessalonians, back to the Thessalonians. As far as reason that the Apostle Paul wrote, uh, Dr. Robert Kara, uh, I thought, summed it up, that Paul's thankful for and delighted by the church. Also, he no longer has to defend his apostleship, which he did in 1 Thessalonians. But on the negative side, the Thessalonians received false information about the second coming. And so he, if you remember the main theme, we put it up here, that it's to encourage one another. Paul wrote these letters to encourage the Thessalonians in their walk, in their faith. And right in here, we see just how glowing and the reasons Paul continues to glow about this young church plant. These two letters, just contextually, all happened probably within a year where Paul plants the church. He leaves, runs out because of the mob within a few weeks to a couple months, and then sends these, this, this young, young church plant. And so let's read uh, verses 1 through 2. This will be the first, first of the two sections this morning. Goes like this, Second Thessalonians, chapter one, verse one. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. And so here we see that Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy are still together at the writing of this letter before they're sent back. Paul makes sure, as he does in every introduction to his epistles, the name of who? The Father and the Son and the Spirit that he is set writing this to, sending it back to them. But two, two things that I would like to focus in on from this introduction come in uh, verse 2. Paul wrote, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. What does Paul mean by grace, biblical grace and peace? I think we should slow down every once in a while. I think it's a great time to do it in the introductions to define these things well so we're not using the world's definitions of these things and putting them into our own lives, that we understand what biblical grace is, biblical peace. And we, the Greek word for uh, grace, charis, used in the New Testament a number of times, in Romans 3, 21 through 25, Paul writes, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we are justified, we are saved, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a, a replacement by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because of his divine forbearance. He had passed over former sins. Grace is a gift. Specifically, gra grace is the gift of salvation. that we're saved in the eyes of God through Jesus Christ. It's a gift that there was nothing that we brought to the table of salvation 
besides the, the sin that made Christ's death necessary. John Frame, a theologian, defines God's grace as uh, theologically as his sovereign, unmerited favor, unearned favor, given to those who deserve his wrath. And I think I've mentioned it a couple times, and I keep wanting to go back to the difference between grace and mercy. And if mercy is we're not given the punishment that we deserve, that's mercy. Grace is that we're giving something opposite of the punishment we deserved. And that, uh, I, wanted, I finally came up with a story to, to explain that a little better, I hope. Uh, but it's more for the mercy side, and that'll help us see the grace. Uh, there was a time uh, after we'd moved out of the city to the country, my family bought this big ranch house, huge. And in the basement was the exact print uh, I don't know, the blueprint of upstairs to downstairs. That's where we all hung out, where we watched TV. And that's also where my brother and I, uh, and I think my mom was in on it too, would clear out all the couches and play basketball and soccer in the winter. And uh, dad was in the back doing something. And so Michael and I are playing soccer. We're, and, uh, as it goes every time, increasing in intensity as we go. Two teenage boys. And where the stairs, you would walk up to go upstairs, there was this wall. It was a drywall wall. And as I, what I thought, gently pushed my brother out of the way, decided to throw himself like a freight train into said drywall. And there's a perfect shape of his rear end imprinted into this wall. Of course, all of our heads slowly turned to where dad was to see how he would respond. And he, for some reason, just didn't look. That was mercy. Because <laughs> we, we had some pain coming for putting hole in a drywall. Even though it wasn't my fault, it was my brother's. Mercy is not receiving the punishment of which you deserved. Grace is, is, is if dad turned around and said, hey, I've been saving these presents for the right moment. And I know you just put the hole in the wall, but I'm going to give you these presents for that because I'm going to fix that. And I've got these presents for you. Even though you have earned the opposite, I'm giving you this. And maybe you say, man, I don't see that in the Bible. I chose my faith. I've said the prayer. I chose that. That's why God saved me. I chose this. Well, Paul trying to distinguish the depth of grace here. Paul gives an amazing statement in the second chapter of the letter to the Ephesians. And what I love about this passage is the way Paul constructs Ephesians 1 and 2. And I want to show you what I mean. So if you would turn to the book of Ephesians, it's just before Thessalonians, a couple letters. Chapter 1, verses 15 through 22. Ephesians 1, 15 through 22. This is where he's talking about the faith we received and who our faith is set in. Paul writes, for this reason, one, chapter 1, 15, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering in my prayers that the, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation 
in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is uh, the hope into which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul is just amazed. He's saying, I'm thankful for the faith that you've shown, but he's so blown away by the grace of Jesus that he can't help but slowly you see his attention slowly turn away from hey I'm thankful for you believers but this Jesus is just so incredibly glorious I need to talk about him he's done it all he died for you he rose for you he has bought you with his blood he has saved you through faith and then Paul jumps into well what we call chapter 2. He goes, Jesus is amazing. The gospel is amazing. And then he goes, but you. Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. He didn't say, but you were just kind of bad. And you chose him. He's like, he said this, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, who is Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So he's done hammering us, right? He says, but God, being rich in mercy... We know what that means. Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, dead in sin, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You've been saved. You've been given this gift of faith when you deserved punishment. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kind, kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. Grace. Salvation through grace has nothing to do with us except the sin that made it required, Jesus' death required. It was all a gift. We received the reward of faith when we had earned hell and punishment. It's like we received the greatest banana split when we threw the baseball through grandma's favorite mirror. Oh, we like banana splits. We were given a present all wrapped up with a big bow on top when we got expelled from school, came home, and they said, doesn't matter, we'll give you this gift instead. But even greater than that, when we were given Jesus while we hated him and followed Satan in this world, we wanted nothing to do with God, wanted everything to do with making ourselves God. Paul wrote, you were spiritually dead in your sins. 
And I think that's why Paul merges grace and peace together here in the introduction. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Peace always follows God's salvation through grace. But why? Let's define peace. Let's do the same work with the word peace. John Frame, the same theologian, says it represents the fullness of the blessings of salvation. Peace as opposed to war, but also completeness, wholeness, and prosperity. The Greek word arene means peace or undisturbedness. Undisturbedness. How many times this week alone could you just take in a slice of a pie of undisturbedness to not for a moment be disturbed by anything that's going on in the world or in your life or in your family, anything that you could be undisturbed. This is what the gospel of Jesus has opened the door for us to that we could have this undisturbedness to us because of the grace of the gospel, because everything, absolutely, 100% of our salvation rests upon the finished work of Jesus on the cross. There's nothing left to be done. I'm sure if you've listened to a couple of my sermons, because there's only a couple out there, I love ringing the bell of Romans 8. If there's just the slightest opportunity to run to Romans 8, I'm going to run there. But past, and Pastor Tom keeps giving me these texts, so I'm thankful for it. I just don't think he wants to do the introductions, but I get to go to, I get to, go to Romans 8 with him. So, and you have to go there because I, I say so. So we're going to go to Romans 8. And as thinking about uh, that word for peace, like un, undisturbable, it's like how do, I, how do I put together a word picture for undisturbable? And I was thinking about uh, actually the Titanic, because that, that boat got disturbed. It didn't have a great time, right? We know where that boat's at. And I was thinking of what could make that completely undisturbable. Like if they made the Titanic exactly how they made it, and then somehow they plant, dug a big hole that would like go halfway up the sides, and they planted that thing here in the North Woods. I think it'd be pretty undisturbable. There's no icebergs coming for it. Miranda pushed back on this, and I I was like, well, okay, fine. If someone launched a nuke at it, okay, fine. It would be disturbed. Fine. That's not my point. But even more so, I would say that the Christian would be even more undisturbed than the Titanic dug and planted in a hole. Okay. Why? So Romans 8, that's why I go there. Romans 8 Verses 31 to 39. Why should the Christian have such a peace that they are unshaken, not thrown around, undisturbed? Romans 8, 31 through 39. And if you have a pen, it's okay if you write in your, your Bible in the margins. You put, you put a star, you put something there. So as you're flipping through, you, this catches your eye because every day this could preach the gospel to us. Apostle Paul writes this, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
He could go full stop right there. There's nothing to disturb you. He goes on. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who saves, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sleep, sheep, uh, sheep to be slaughtered. No, no, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's why we can be undisturbable. That's why we can have a peace that cannot be robbed from us. Better than the Titanic hidden away in the forest. Because if our one true hope, the only hope, that if everything else were to fall away, but we still had Jesus, if that was our true hope for all eternity, nothing else could sway us. This is why Jesus said in Luke 6.46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on that rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. I realize like the elections just happened. I know that inflation is hitting all of us. I know that the money in our government's just being thrown around all willy-nilly, and that gets into our crawl, as they said in North Carolina when we lived there. I know that this country just seems out of control, that the county can seem like it's out of control, but there's nothing, absolutely nothing in this world who can remove you from the love of God. There's nothing. Undisturbedness. As we're laying in our beds, and I do this all the time, that's where it gets me, laying in the bed, rolling through all the things that are going on undisturbedness. Jesus, our rock, gives us a piece of peace that nothing can remove us from. That's why Paul starts off with this. Grace and peace to you. And he's writing it to you this morning as well. Moving on to our second uh, passage here, verses 3 and 4. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, 3 and 4. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, brothers and sisters, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you, sorry, every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring enduring. 
faith and love that increases. Final passage this morning, Paul says that he, he's, he should be giving thanks. He, he ought to be praying and celebrating to, the, to God, and he probably was for a few reasons. That the Thessalonians' faith was growing abundantly, that the love of every one of them for everyone around them in the church was growing and increasing and that their faith is steadfast in the face of persecution and afflictions. But he puts his finger on two things that I wanted to draw our attention to this morning uh, again is where he says that your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. And faith is an interesting thing to define in 21st century America. It's, it's kind of tossed around all the time. Like, oh, you've got a great garden. How, how's it going to do this year? I don't know. I've got faith that it'll, it'll be fine. I mean, even atheists I've, I've seen on, online or in interviews, uh, you just got to have faith that this thing is going to work. I mean, even though they have nothing to, in their entire worldview to base faith upon, it's all random chances. Do you think this job choice will work out? I don't know. I've got faith a cop-out. But how do we, Christians, use this word that's been taken out of context? How does a collective group of people, all belonging to one local body, just like the Thessalonians did, grow in one direction together, individually and corporately? The first compliment received here by Paul is that they are growing in faith. Wayne Grudem defines faith as the trust in Jesus Christ as a living person for forgiveness of sins and for eternal life with God, but that is saving faith. That is the faith that came upon us when our eyes were opened and we believed in Jesus, and that's uh, when we were saved. But Paul's not using that here. He's not saying, hey, I remember when you uh, began to believe and you put your faith in Christ. He's saying your faith, your current faith is growing abundantly. It's been defined the way Paul's using here, faith. Faith, belief, and trust. Generally, of the leaning of the entire human personality upon God or Christ. An absolute trust and confidence in his power, goodness, and wisdom. Paul here is, is saying that the Thessalonians have this active faith in the Lord that is increasing how does one's faith increase? How does, as in this definition, definition, the leaning of the entire human personality upon God or the Messiah in absolute trust? And the only thing that uh, came to mind uh, for me as an illustration, uh, and since Lily is not in here anymore, I can use her as a, an example. If you've been to our uh, tiny little rental house, uh, we have this little hallway that leads right out the door into whatever garage thing that is attached to the house. And every, we're in that sweet moment when the little girls just want a hug and a kiss before you leave. That's awesome. It's a great time. Sometimes I'm just focused on whatever's uh, coming up, and I blast out of the house, and I hear her yelling for me behind me. And so I, as I l walk out the door, there's a few steps that go down. I'm at the foot of the steps, and she comes around the corner to the hallway and lines up, gears up like she's going to run at me and jump. So I brace, and I'm ready to catch her. And that girl, full bore with those tiny legs, comes running at me down this hallway, comes leaping and soaring through the air into a big hug. 
That wasn't quite as romantic as that. She did come sprinting down the hallway, but she put on this magic e-brake right before she hit the steps. And it's like a piece of glass was in the doorway and she just froze. And she looked down and she saw how far the steps went down and all the possibilities of what happened if, if she launched herself and dad wasn't faithful enough to do everything he could to catch her. And I kid you not, probably for five to six minutes, she would then back up and come at me again and over and over and over she would just freeze at the doorway. And slowly, she decided, oh, I'll just get down on the first step. I'll get Dad to move a little closer, and then I'll jump. And she did. And uh, I didn't know if I should have been offended. You know, she wasn't confident in my abilities uh, as a catcher. I'm like, I'm Dad. You should be able to be free to jump. But... Uh, she's probably wiser than I am, knows I'm not infallible, and she's probably the wiser one for doing so. But I think that's the same way we treat faith in the Lord. It's like, well, and hold on, I've got to just look at all the details. I've got to crunch the numbers. I've got to uh, see what's coming, what's behind the other doors, the possibility of those things. And if I cross all those things off and I know exactly what's going to happen, I'll have faith. That's not what the Thessalonians were doing. Paul's writing that they'd found success in performing everything that they did with utter trust and dependency upon God. So much so that he was boasting about them to these other church plants that he's running around to. Like be like the Thessalonians, whose faith and entire leaning upon the Lord is growing. Be like them. And I want, I want to pose that question to us today as a church. Like, how, how are we doing individually and corporately as a group of leaning with our whole being upon the Lord and trust and with faith with our lives? It's not easy. You know, whether we're business owners or teachers, employees or unemployed or farmers, are we operating out of a place where we know that God, when God wrote in Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who called according to his purpose. Are we wandering through our, our day worrying about what's coming next in our lives? Like I've been here, I don't know, Jude, Jude is about 10 months. I always subtract a month and that's how long we've been here. So nine and a half months or so. And so I've gotten to know some of you. Not enough, but some of you to know some of what's happening in your lives and the difficulty that's going on in our lives collectively in this church. I know it's not easy. There's difficulties. Are we worrying about our parents and their situation and how it affects us? Are we worrying about something with our own health and that it's throwing us for this loop? Is it possible that we're professing to be Christians, loved by a perfect and holy God, yet when we run to the edge of the stairs, we stop? Because we aren't just sure if God has completely, if he's got us. Our jobs, finances, health, future, and families. Is our faith, our utter dependence, and leaning upon God growing? Faith is God. That's what it is. Paul also here tells him that he boasts about their love. Your love between every one of you in, in that church. 
that your love for one another is increasing. And if faith is that relationship, I don't know, a lot of people like to do this, the vertical and horizontal. If faith is your relationship with the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, love is that relationship between you in this body. This brand new church, not a year old, who's figured out this love thing. And in the face of complete persecution and afflictions, financially and physically, the city's coming after them. Since we're defining words. 1 Corinthians 13, if you'd flip there with me. This is the way, this is the way Paul spoke of love. This is what the Thessalonians were actively growing in with one another. He wrote, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong, or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and I, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endure all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it'll pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror, dim, uh, a mirror dimly lit, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Verse 13, so now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Galatians 5, when he, Paul writes about the fruit of the Spirit, the first one he lists, love. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no love. Is this our heart motivations as we interact with one another through the week, through the month, in our homes, at work, in the church, is this love, that love defined by Paul, what motivates us in our relationship? Because it's easy to critique. It's easy to find flaws. It's easy to find something that you could do better than that person or to find reasons not to go or reasons not to come. But love. And of course, our root of our love is shown in John 13. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I loved you, Jesus says. Just as I loved you, you also are to love one another. It would be amazing to see this church and every church shift the motivation of what we do purely formed around love. Because Jesus first loved us when he was hanging on the cross, bleeding out for our souls, and rose again, and now sits at the right hand of the Father, 
watching over us. Love. I think that'd be a beautiful thing. And I think that grace and peace and faith and love is what Paul is just glowing about this church. Just glowing enough to write these two letters. Enough to send correction and theology, what we're going to see in the upcoming weeks before Christmas. But I just want to call you upon those things, to reflect upon those things, to let the Spirit change us in those things to be more Christ-like, because Christ died for you. So we live for Him. So would you uh, pray with me, please, as we close? Father, thank you for, uh, of course, these letters, First and Second Thessalonians, and uh, I know that introductions like these can be glossed over, just like when we come to a genealogy. Like, oh, we'll just flip past this because I've seen this a hundred times. Uh, thank you for slowing us down this morning to see this. I'd ask that you would help us and our souls to know that your grace is why we are sitting in this room. Complete gift. That that would result in a pure peace and undisturbedness as, as rocks and stones are thrown up against and waves of the sea are thrown up against us in our lives that we would be undisturbed as we run to Christ instead of to our own selves, the one who bought us and will never let us go or leave us, that that would leave us undisturbable. And I thank you for the example of faith and love of the Thessalonians and help us as a church, as a group of believers gathering together, that we would increase in those things, that you would move in our souls to be more like Christ, to love one another well, to chase and lean upon God well in faith. We thank you. And I pray this in your son's name. Amen.